Okay, welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, I got my friend on here from Southern California, Stephen Yin. He actually works in private equity as a full-time job, and he loves it. But he also still has a side gig as a real estate investor. So today, we're bringing him on. We're going to talk about how he's been so successful investing in real estate in his home state of Alabama. So, Stephen, welcome to the show, man. How you doing, bro? Hey, Ken, I'm doing well. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for having me. Yeah, man, dude, I, I when I first heard about you and I heard you were investing in Alabama, I was like, oh, you're one of the first guys I know that's investing there. And you happen to be from yeah. there at the same time and be from there. Right. So I that's always, right. always love learning about new markets and especially markets that I'm not particularly familiar with. So why don't you just give okay. us a little bit about some information about your background and how you even got into real estate investing and affordable housing? Sure, happy to, and and uh, thanks for thanks for taking the time to speak with me. So um, I grew up uh, mostly in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, my family was born in China, and then uh, moved here when I was about six years old. We lived in Atlanta for a couple of years before moving to uh, Birmingham. Uh, I believe this was in two thousand four. So I spent the majority of my childhood there, and my parents uh, still live there. My younger sister uh, is finishing up high school there, so I do have a lot of strong fam family family connections to the area. I think that for me, uh, I've worked in finance since I graduated uh, from college. Um, and the way that I, I guess, started in real estate investing was actually when COVID first started. I went home for about three months and I was working from home and I had some extra time. At the same time, one of my very good friends from college asked me out of the blue one day, have you ever considered buying up a rental property in Alabama? And I said, no. <laughs> but, uh, but if you're serious about it, I can schedule some walkthroughs via Zillow. And so he was serious about it, and we wanted to we want we want we wanted to do something that was affordable for us, but that also would cash flow quite nicely. And I think we must have toured, or I toured on behalf of us, gosh, 10, 15 properties. And we settled on one. It was competitive. Um, we uh, the ask was for a, for this three bed one bath um, in a lower income part of the city. It was, I believe, fifty four thousand uh, dollars, and we negotiated it down to forty eight, and that was our first house. And um, uh, we, we've since uh, changed partners. He one of my, one, one of my current partners bought bought him out when he wanted to uh, liquidate. So we saw the house. It, uh, believe it or not, has cash flowed every month. There is minimal maintenance. Um, the tenant always pays on time, as does, um, of course, the housing authority, which uh, issues the Section 8 voucher. And it's been a great investment um, for the past, I would say, almost three years. That, that's I want to caveat that by saying it's not the case with every single property, especially in affordable housing because there are issues that come up, whether it's maintenance, getting the, um, getting the house uh, uh, certified by the local housing authority. And of course, um, issues that come up out of the blue, whether it's ADA access, HVAC breaking, mold, or anything else that, you, that can happen, but that you don't think will happen, it's gonna happen. So, dude, uh, dude, right, housing is not for the pain of heart. To you, props to you first 
for talking to your friend about a business because how many times i don't know where, where listeners experiences are but sometimes we're always at the bar and we're talking with friends and everyone always has a crazy business idea but it usually right. never goes anywhere you right. actually took that idea and said all right let's actually go explore this you took action right away you you right. found 10 10 to 15 properties you toured and then you also negotiated down your first property as a newbie like wow dude like sometimes people are just like okay this is the list of price like let me just go for it um uh, but let me let me pause here and because everybody right. always asks me this question how yeah. did you negotiate your first partnership with the deal because you you already had a partner for the first deal and then you also had another partner to bottom out people always ask about like how do you structure it those type of yeah. transactions so can you give us some examples of like tactically how did you structure that and sure. you know, obviously how did you guys end that partnership amicably Sure. Yeah. So uh, just to be clear, um, my first partner and I are very, very good friends. Uh, I went to his wedding last year. The reason why he um, uh, wanted to liquidate is because he and his wife uh, were moving to Europe. And so they wanted to move a lot of their assets from the U.S. to um, to a state where it was more liquid, which made sense to me. Um, so the way that we structured um that partnership as well as my existing one is we um, we just started um, literally um, an LLC. Uh, we structured it as a partnership where each person, each party, me and him, would um, be accountable for 50% of the expenses and also uh, can enjoy the benefits of 50% of the revenue. So it was a very simple, clean structure and we literally went onto the Alabama Secretary of State website and filled out a form in 20 minutes, paid the registration fee, and then we got a certificate. And then we went onto the IRS website, auto-generated our EIN number, and then we uh, found a registered agent where it's a $49 annual subscription fee to be our registered agent. Um, and then we were in business. That was, that was it. And then um, to answer your other question, how do we make that transfer where my first partner got bought up by the second partner? It was a cash transaction where, where one LLC sold the house to another LLC. That was basically, it, it, was a, it, was, it was as clean and simple as you can get in terms of transferring someone's equity interest to someone else if, if it were if it were more involved like if there were three people and there was there was unequal uh ownership stakes then we may have we may have had to perhaps hire um outside counsel to help us uh determine what the optimal structure is but for for this particular purpose it was it was it was quite simple oh that's so cool man and i think you guys you just made it sound so simple for so many people where well, everybody thing, overthinks it, overcomplicates yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the thing is, the thing is um, and, and this goes to one of your questions of what are some of the tactics that you want to keep in mind as you uh, build your portfolio? You want to make sure that you have a great um, closing agent. I've worked with numerous different closing agents in the past, and they've ranged from being great to being not so great. Um, and I think the key difference is making sure 
that they can get you an accurate closing document a day or two before you actually close. So that's something I something I I, I always ask for, and the closing agent we work with knows this is um, two days before I'll say, "Can you send me a draft version so I can tick and tie the numbers?" And oftentimes I'll find something that's wrong, and I'll say, "Hey, per the purchase agreement, you know, section eight, clause two, I'm supposed to be getting this credit or something like that." So it's really about paying attention to detail and making sure that you that the day of closing is two things should happen on the day of closing. Number one, you wire the amount to the bank. Number two, you sign the closing documents either um, in person or via Zoom or uh, uh, or um, uh, in, uh, in front of someone, and that you can close successfully. You should, you should, you should not be negotiating what is on the closing document on the day of close that creates a lot of unnecessary stress. And <laughs> uh, it's, it's really important to, to, to just keep that in mind. Um, the other thing I would also add, and again, this is something that I I've learned because I've mm -hmm. made a mistake and is yep. always sign in blue ink, no matter what. Oh, always smart. Sign in blue ink. <laughs> and number two, um, if you're going to do remote, so all my closings have been done remotely because I'm not, I'm not physically at the office of the mm -hmm. closing agent, which is, you know, a law, a law firm in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm not there mm -hmm. when I close the house. So I always make, let, let it, you know, let, let them know well at a time, Hey, this is going to be a remote closing. And you can do it in one of two ways. Number one is um, you can go to a local notary and sign the records of documents in front of them. And they, you know, give their, uh, they notarize the documents and then you overnight the, the original versions back to um, the closing agent. That's the first method. And by the way, be sure to scan a copy for yourself for record keeping before you mail it. So that's the first method. The second method, you can actually ask the closing attorney to watch you sign the documents over Zoom. And that actually will save you notary fees. And what they basically what hot each tip. State, I love that. Each, each, state, <laughs> each state is different, but basically they record, you know, that session. They need to keep it on record for X number of years. Uh, but if you ask, mm -hmm. uh, make sure that your lender, if there's a lender involved, approves this in writing. My lender is very good and he's understanding. So he says approve pretty, pretty quickly. But you can close over Zoom with a closing attorney and save, you know, 150 bucks on wow. notary and shipping and printing fees. Um, so anyway, that's really so important. Them. It's very, it's very it, important like because sometimes, sometimes, you, sometimes, unfortunately, you'll have some closing attorneys who maybe may not be familiar depending, depending on what kind of transaction or what kind of structure that you are doing. And so it's just very important that they know everything up front and that your mentality going in, because again, you're driving the process, right? You're, you're putting down the down, you're putting, you're putting the down payment on the house. You are in charge of coordinating the inspection. You're, you're in charge of getting the financing. And ultimately you're in charge of making sure that your ducks are on a row when you are in the closing process. So it's your responsibility to have that, Hey guys, two weeks, 
away from close, what documents do you need from me to make your life easier? And that goes for every, every party involved, insurance, the seller, your agent, the lender, the closing attorney, the inspectors. It's your, it's, it's, it's your responsibility as the future equity owner of this property to be driving that process. And that's something I learned from my, from my day job is that, you know, you have, you, you can't rely on your agent to check in and, and say, Hey, where are we on insurance? Have we, have, have, have we, have we, have we gotten the insurance um, uh, policy down? That's your job. So let me pause there. Dude, I love that you are encouraging people to take ownership because so many times people just go into transactions expecting things would just get done and it will just magically happen without any sort yeah. of oversight. I'm not saying that can't happen, but in general, especially if you have investors or partners, you should take ownership of that process. And I love that you literally went through every single step so that you made sure people understand like, hey, this is all the stuff that you've been through yourself, Stephen, and right. everybody else should kind of pay attention to not only just from uh, the process standpoint, but you even point out little things like I didn't know about like, I didn't know you could close over a zoom uh, with an attorney yeah. watching like, that is so clever. And that's so innovative and saving $150. That's like almost sometimes a whole month's worth of cash flow, guys. Like that's, that's right. That's real bottom line money. Or you guys it's, have to or it's like 15, 15, Chipotle, uh, 15 Chipotle bowls. <laughs> without the clock I, I, I you know I, I think I, I actually think a lot about the cost of things in terms of Chipotle bowls Food. which is ironic because I love Chipotle but I, I don't really eat out much um I, I usually cook at home uh but I love Chipotle nonetheless dude we're gonna get some Chipotle for lunch um so let's let's maybe transition this to to affordable housing um sure. one is your first home was affordable housing how yes. did you even know about Section 8, affordable housing? Like, how did you decide, like, hey, for my first rental, we're going to go the affordable housing route? What right. was that thought process behind it? And yep. um, how difficult was it going through that process of inspections, uh, getting mm -hmm. the tenants, et cetera, the first time? Sure. No, great question. So let me try to answer them in the, in the order you, you asked. So number one is, why did, this, is, did I know about Section 8? And the answer is no. I had no idea. I had to listen to a, a couple of podcasts on bigger pockets to familiarize myself and do my own research before really understanding how uh, HUD funds the Section 8 uh, voucher program for each um, housing authority, which of course is very localized. So that I had to do my own research on that front. Number two is how to decide on perhaps this particular house um, is at the time, uh, something that people won't tell you is um, very few lenders will lend to you if the purchase price of your house is under a certain amount. Some lenders who are more conservative mm -hmm. may um, put a $75,000 price minimum. A lot of people, a lot of lenders will say, I'm not going to go anything under 50K. And so when uh, my, my partner and I purchased this first property at $40,000, we were going to purchase in cash. So, we wanted we wanted something that could definitely cash flow, and that would not be a huge uh, drain on our on our liquidity. Um, so that that was that that was a thought process uh, there. We, we were not gonna, and also we had no idea uh, how to take out a loan. Um, <laughs> and so even if we found something that was, for example, maybe a hundred k that had higher rent, uh, we just didn't know. We just we just had no idea. 
Um, and then we, of course, you know, you learn as you, as you go. Uh, but at the time, we just had, we just didn't know. So that was that was the second thing. The third thing was we actually found uh, the tenant uh, inside the property. So what that means is when we purchased the property, there was already a tenant living there. And so mm-hmm. that begs the question: Well, Stephen, how do you how can you filter that so that when you look for houses, you can distinguish between uh, houses that already have tenants and houses that do not have tenants. And really the simple thing is on Zillow or Redfin, you go to advanced search and in the specific keywords, just type section eight. And usually, and the reason why is because when realtors list properties with a section eight tenant, they will usually say section eight tenant living here at X dollars of rent per month. And so that it's a simple filter for, for you to uh, find if you, if you, if you don't want to find tenants um, yourself and you want to, you want to buy a property with a tenant already living there, that's a simple way to, to, uh, to do that. Um, and, uh, I think those are most of the questions that you asked, but let me know if I missed anything. Yeah. So you found this. So it sounds like the section eight tenant was already living at this first property you bought. Did I catch yes. that correctly? Oh, and uh, you asked about inspection and whatnot. Um, so I asked my agent, hey, do you know any general inspectors who are good? So uh, I, think it's pre- I think it's pretty standard to ask uh, for, uh, for a period of you know, 10 days after you execute the purchase agreement to give yourself time to do the inspection. At the time, uh, we only did you know, a general walkthrough inspection and then we looked at the report and, and then we, we went from there. Now what I do for every close is I do the general inspection. Uh, I do an electrical inspection. I do a roof inspection and I do a sewer inspection. The sewer inspection is very important. And, and you and I talked about this briefly last week because if you have a sewer issue, it is a time sensitive and expensive thing that needs to be fixed. So if you're buying an old house, which usually is what a lot of affordable houses are, oftentimes they'll have, or they may have lead pipes. Okay, if you wanna replace lead pipes, it's a whole process. You have to get a city permit from the city to dig up dirt and then replace mm-hmm. lead pipes with you know PVC pipes. That's a very expensive process. And the thing is, you're not gonna know unless you get a specialty inspector there to put his camera, you know, down the toilet and, <laughs> and, yep. and understand what the, what the condition of the piping is. So anyways, that's, that's the inspection portion. And then as for the rent, that was already something that was negotiated by, um, by the housing authority. I will say, and we can discuss this in detail later. Um, one of the, one of the, one of the things to consider for affordable housing is while you will experience very low to no delinquency risk, from Section 8, you may experience challenges with um, having the housing authority pay rent at market value. And mm-hmm. even if you follow their procedures in terms of asking for a rent increase, they may change the rules without telling you and deny your rent increase. So as an example, this property currently rents at about $775 a month. Not bad. The market rent is about 9.25. And we followed, we want to say we, I mean, my property manager and I, we followed 
the uh, procedures that Birmingham Housing Authority laid out to increase or to ask for a rent increase. And then because of one small technicality, they denied it. And so I, I told my property manager, hey, you know, this time, you know, January 2023 is when we, uh, should go back to or we can go back to section eight and ask for a price increase let's ask for this the week after thanksgiving and i put a calendar invite uh uh, along with her to remind ourselves hey monday after thanksgiving we're going to the housing authority and we're asking for a market rent increase um so it's important to stay on top of things now, and with that is. technicality, because of timing, because you you missed a deadline, like it has to be within sixty or one twenty days, whatever that. Oh, we uh, we, made the, we made we made we made a sixty day timeline. It was something about how oh, uh, it's actually um uh, it's actually based on another date, so that it was you know within thirty days as opposed to sixty days. I'll need to check back on the on the email chain to to tell you the exact reason, but. The point is, um, you know, each housing authority mm-hmm. is, is very different. They have their own rules and they have their own idiosyncrasies. And oftentimes it can be difficult to not difficult. That's not the right word. It can be challenging to work with with them, uh, especially for organizations that um, are understaffed. Um, so it's, yep. it's, it's it's very important to um, to be ahead of the game and to take what whatever rules and regulations they have. And then to bake in uh, even more conservatism and say, okay, they said 60 days, let's do 90 days internally. Um, so it's got it. Just keep, 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 uh, keep in mind. Yeah. And I think that helps like once you, for the listeners out there, right? Once you pick your market and you understand exactly what those procedures and processes are for local yep. housing authority, you also have to understand like everybody, like they heard about. Uh, it's so hard to hire people, right? That goes for every single type of business and also for the housing authorities too. You have to have to, you cannot procrastinate and it's on you as the investor securing your investor's money to fight for the maximum amount of rent uh, in in the scenario. So you should definitely take Steven's advice, get ahead of the game so that if there are anything that was missed in the process for like a rent increase, like you can kind of get ahead of that and give yourself some cushion. So you're not mm-hmm. kind of just out of luck for the whole year for 12 months before you can get to the next lease uh, or the rent totally. increase. But Stephen, right. you've, so you've got some tenants in there. Do you have like, you know, one of the things we want to do here is like inspire other people to kind of get involved in affordable mm-hmm. housing. Do you have any stories of pe- people you've been able to help um, via affordable housing with your tenants there? Yeah. Uh, one of, one of the other properties that, that I have, it's another three, three bed, one bath. Um, uh, I, I got this for, I think $44,000, uh, two years ago. Um, and, uh, the, the tenant, um, was obviously section eight. Uh, and she, um, recently had a medical procedure where, um, where, uh, where, where one of her limbs was uh, amputated. Um, and so um, I made the house um, ADA friendly um, so she could maneuver around the house uh, relatively easily. Wow. That's so, that's so great, man. You, you literally changed her life and made her life so much easier by, by going above and beyond, right? And, yeah. I, and I'm sure she probably won't be moving out anytime soon because you have gone above and beyond being a great landlord there and they're 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 uh, uh i 
<laughs> Thank you. I think there are a limited number of houses in Birmingham that uh, are ADA friendly um, based on the neighborhoods that she would want to live in. Yeah. And I think, but this is just such a good example of like you being able to help out somebody and you, you really are changing her life um, for the better by becoming, not only is it good for your business, quote unquote, because your vacancy expense is going to be very, very low now, but you right. actually made a really, really big impact on her. And I, I think that's so cool, man. Thank you for sharing that story, dude. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. That's so inspirational. And it just speaks to the type of person that you are. I love it. Um, so let's kind of go into, you know, that was a, one of the cool things that you were able to do. But like you and I talked about, we always want to surface the problems that you can kind of come into, right? Sure. You talked about mm -hmm. the sewage problems that cost you a lot of money. But what about when you are buying properties and, you know, with or without an existing tenant in place, what yep. have you found to be sort of, I guess that we're looking for advice that you would give to, to mm -hmm. the listeners right now. Like what kind of red flags or issues do you think there are associated with buying a property with a tenant in place versus not having one? Like what has been your experience in, with that matter? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think some of the challenges with buying a property with a tenant in place would be you're not knowing how, um, how on time they will be in terms of future payments. Of course, you can add, you know, you can ask for the rent roll, um, and I think that's helpful to a certain extent. But you're just not, you're just not going to know. Um, and there have been tenants, um, there have been houses I've purchased where you have a tenant who's been living there for several years, and six months after you purchase, they give you notice and they say, "Hey, I'm going to leave." Um, and so, and so, I think it's important when you evaluate and underwrite different properties that if you're going to buy a property with a tenant who's already there, assume that there is a decent chance of them moving out, even if they tell you that they won't move out. Um, and just bake in the cost of the, the rehab and the vacancy that you would uh, undergo. Um, now, to answer your the other part of your question, some of the challenges with buying just a home with without a tenant, I think it's very important to uh, uh, to understand the, the the neighborhood demographics and to better um, uh, understand what kind of tenant you want to attract. Obviously, you know a class A neighborhood is going to be very different from a class C or D neighborhood um, in terms of how much rent you can have, expenses, type of tenant, longevity of the tenant, all those all those all those factors. So I think it's going to be very important for you to understand what your rent potential is, as well as what that future upside looks like. There are some neighborhoods where the rent has remained the same for the past several years, and there are some where the rent has exploded. So I think now, I think you should underwrite in such a way that you should not, you should not assume any rent increase to be, you know, uh, to, be, to be conservative with your estimates. But I think it's important to just have that in your mind um, of, you know, how much more rent you can get on, on, on an annual basis. I would say that, uh, in terms of general things to watch out for, regardless if the house is a tenant or not, you want to understand how much maintenance was done over the past 12 to 24 months. You want to understand the age of the HVAC. You want to understand when the roof was replaced. You want to understand if there's been any water or mold issues. 
which can be detrimental to, to the property and very expensive for you. Um, and you want to understand, um, uh, you want to, you, 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 yeah, I, I think those are some of the main key, key areas that come to mind for me in terms of diligencing the property um, during your, during, during the closing process. Something to keep in mind also is obviously you won't be able to understand and know these facts until after your inspector completes the report. So oftentimes what I would do is I read the report, I comb through it in detail. I walk through it with my inspector and have him, it's usually him, give me a qualitative assessment. And then I ask him, you know, of the properties that you have inspected, where does this fall from a range from a, from a range of one to ten? One being mm, this is pristine, great one. turnkey. You can you can move in yourself. To ten being, uh, this house needs to be demolished. You know where 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 does that fall? Just to get a better feel for um, what that looks like. And then if I if I if I discover issues, such as oh there are holes on the roof, which means I need to replace them with I I need to replace the shingles which is going to be expensive. I'm, I would go back to the seller through my agent and I would say, Hey, this is an issue that I found. And a, a rough estimate of the cost is, you know, 10 grand or whatever the amount is. Um, I like either number one for that to be baked into the purchase price or number two to um, have you fix it beforehand. Um, and I, and that's, and, that, and by the way, that's happened before where I, I would find an issue and uh, I would have uh, someone fix it beforehand. Um, you typically want to lower the purchase price. Um, why is that? Number one, you have greater control over you fixing it. Sometimes people will do a shoddy job of fixing with their GCs and then call it a day. So you want to, mm -hmm. you, that's part of your, that's part of your QAQC process. Number two. By lowering the purchase price, instead of having them fix it, you put less money in and the, the amount of debt you have to take out is less, which means your overall cost basis is less. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. And you get lower property taxes at the, at the same time. Yep. And it's yep. like, guys, for the people listening, you have to get creative on how you make something a deal and you got to consider all elements of it, right? It's by, by lowering the purchase price, lower debt, lower interest. Right. And at the same time, you get lower property taxes that all affects your monthly cash flow. And it's about how much you can squeeze out of, into the bottom line there. Um, so that's all, all great advice, man. And Again, like one of the things we always talk about is like, hey, what type of mm -hmm. horror stories do you have to, that you can kind of share yeah. with us about sure. your real estate investment careers, particularly with tenants? Because you and I talked about the stigma with with Section 8 yep. of affordable housing is that it's always gangs, drugs, drama. What type of issues have you run into it and how have you mm -hmm. dealt with those issues? Sure. So I'll, I'll tell you one that I'm dealing with live right now. Um, this this was a two bed one bath property that I uh, that I own. Um, we got a, a, a partner and I got it for very cheaply. Um, and there was a tenant there. Um, uh, she uh, vacated the property. I would say last September, we put in about six grand of rehab and renovation to make the property rent ready. We um, uh, rented it out to um, another tenant uh, who had been paying um uh rent on a pretty consistent basis 
Uh, and when you had a, he had a steady job, he had a, he had a pretty clean track record of, of, of paying on time. And I think uh, around Christmas time, he uh, asked for, um, <laughs> he, uh, he, he, put in the, he put in a request saying that his heater wasn't working. And mind you, this house, it's a two bed, one bath. There's two window units as opposed to central AC. Uh, so we uh, got someone out there, AC heater was working just fine. And we charged him for the, for the trip uh, because the AC was functioning proper, properly. He um, refused to pay for the, uh, for the trip charge and then just stopped paying rent. And then he just vacated the property. Uh, so now the property is vacant. And um, last week we just found that um, both of the window units were missing as well as the bathroom vanity. Ugh. And um, there was no sign of a break-in. And so our best guess is that this tenant took both of the window units and the bathroom vanity with him as he vacated the property. Oh and, my God. And, and, the, and, and, and on top of that, as opposed to going to us and understanding um, some of the issues that he was having so that we could help resolve them, um, he went to the city of Birmingham and the city of Birmingham issued us a notice saying that the house was not up to code. Um, now that's actually not as big of a deal as, as it sounds like. Basically, what you need to do is you need to get a specific scope of work from the city, electrical, plumbing, you know, heating, et cetera, and make sure that you exactly um, finish that scope of work and have them certify it. So it's not it's not like a, it's not as big of a deal as it, as it seems, but it, it basically it basically means that this property is not worthy of someone living there. Um, but that was also an area of frustration where basically now we need to um, replace both window units, replace the bathroom vanity, uh, spend some money to get the house up to code and then look for another tenant. Wow, man, that, that can be frustrating. Um, and was this a section eight tenant as well? No. Oh, the, the there you go. The gentleman was, the gentleman was in, ironically, law enforcement. Oh man, that's, but that's kind of crazy though. Right? But these are issues that p newbies, you guys will probably run into something. If you are truly engaged in real estate investing, like everybody says, it's only a matter of time, you know, when you do an eviction, right? And you will run to issues like this. But in this case, Steven said, hey, look, this is what happened. Someone stole my AC unit, someone stole my vanities. And all of a sudden the building department says it's no longer habitable. But at the same time, it's just about, hey, just keep problem solving it. When problems come up, right. just look for how to solve it. And in yep. this scenario, you just got to scope of work and you just got to kind of just check the box off the checklist and then right. time to kind of move on. So that's why right. it's something that I love that you shared this because people always think about, like, well, what if something goes wrong? What if someone robs my, my apartment? Well, this just happened to Steven. And guess what? He bounced right back from it and he's still right. alive, right? It's not like it's not life or death situation. So by removing that fear, I think you just kind of encourage a lot of people to think about like, hey, 
if X and X happens, I can just kind of come back to this interview where Kent talked to Steven about that situation. And now I know exactly what to happen. And I no longer need to be scared of it. So thank right. you, dude, for, for sharing that advice, yeah. man. That's uh, awesome. And I would say, and by the way, I would say uh, two things um, to sort of add on, uh, Kent. Number one is um, assuming that you work with a property manager, um, I, I think it's important and helpful to check in with a property manager on these kinds of longer term work streams. So um, I laid out in a very clear email to my property manager. I said, these are the houses that are experiencing issues. Here's the scope of work. Here's a timeline. And here's a path to resolving these issues. And it's important to check in with them every, maybe not every day. That's, that's, that's excessive, <laughs> but, but, um, that's draconian. Um, but it's important to check in with them maybe mm -hmm. once every week or two weeks. Hey, where are we? Where are we on this rehab? Where are we on finding the next tenant? Where are we on making this fix? Those kinds of things are going to be important and helpful for you as the landlord and, and as the equity uh, uh, holder of the house. Number two is a lot. A lot of times, some of these fixes can be quite expensive. You know, several grand, uh, as I'm sure you probably have experienced. Ken, so it's important it's 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 important for your cash flow to negotiate a payment plan with the uh with the contractor so as an example one of my properties experienced a a sewer issue where essentially uh the tenant cannot use the bathroom so that's a that's a serious time sensitive must fix issue the total cost of that was you know seven grand, I think. Okay, well, I didn't wanna just uh, put in seven grand at once. Um, that just didn't make sense to me from a cash flow perspective. So I directly called the um, inspector, or sorry, the, the sewage company and I said, hey, I wanna work with you guys. I wanna give you guys this piece of business, um, uh, can't, but, but, but this is not uh, helpful uh, for me. So uh, let's talk about what a uh, payment plan looks like. And I'm happy to sign whatever documentation you need me to sign to put a lien on the house in case I am delinquent in my payments. Um, so we negotiated, basically uh, I said, if you will let me pay um, this over six months, I'm willing to pay you a, a grand total of $7,300 in six months in six equal uh, increments um, starting on this date. And so we negotiated that, we agreed to it. I actually put a recurring counter invite and, a, and, I, and I put the sewer company's rep on there, basically on the 15th of every month, you know, pay X amount to uh, pickle plumbing. And that's a way for me to show them that I'm being intentional and that I'm being accountable to them because you want to be a good partner um, as, as you develop your own network. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the, not the funny part, but here's the part that I realized. I got in touch with that um, contractor through my property manager. And for all the listeners out there, it's, it's, it's standard practice for your property manager to charge a 10% fee on top of whatever maintenance fixes um, they have. I um, asked the sewage inspector 
I asked Pickle Plumbing to invoice me directly as opposed to going through the property manager. If I had gone through the property manager, number one, it would have been 10% on top of 7K, which gets you to 7,700. And number two, I wouldn't have been able to pay over six months um, in six months in, in installments. So by actually going directly to the uh, to the to, to to the contractor, I was able to um, pay in installments, and my total cost is seventy three hundred dollars, as opposed to seventy seven hundred dollars. So net net, I saved four hundred dollars, and I got a better payment plan. Dude, you are someone that I need to invest with. Like, come on, guys. Like, you got to be so creative with these things because if you, Steven, if you had just rolled over and just accepted, like, okay, this is the cost. Property manager got me a, a, a bid, 7,700 bucks. Like, that's a lot of cash out of pocket. So, not only right. did you get creative, you said, hey, let me pay you over payment so the cash will take care of it. So, now for all right. the people out there, like, hey, I'm so scared of, you know, what if X, what if the sewage needs repairing or something like that? And I need to come up with $7,000 out of pocket. I, I can't come up with that money out of pocket. So they never get started with investing. Like you can negotiate not only on a purchase right. price, but you can negotiate on terms and you can present it in such a way that the contractor is actually making more money at the end of the day after interest, especially right. if they don't need the cash right away. Exactly. And you save money by going around, not right. going around a property manager, but like you got creative with right. just how you engage the contractors because it was such a big job that you probably needed some oversight onto right. something like that. So right. I absolutely I love it. And I would also say just this, this is more, you know, high level principle, more of a principle than a tactic, you know, putting aside ethics and morals. Uh, and of course, you know, being compliant with, with, with state, local, federal law, everything is up for negotiation everything purchase price who pays for what insurance inspection property management fees attorney fees professional services fees everything is up for negotiation it is your responsibility as the again i, I we can say landlord i i really i like saying equity owner because it implies ownership um it is your job to negotiate aggressively. So for example, um, uh, there was a duplex that, uh, that I got off market about a year and a half ago. And, you know, the, 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 the seller was a, a very, very old woman who had held the property for close to 40 years and just wanted to liquidate. And so she was, she was a motivated seller. She wanted, um, execution, um, certain, she wanted closing certainty and she wanted speed. Um, and I said, fine, you're asking 85, 90 K for this house. And you want these three things. We're going to dial it down to, I asked for 60 K. So I asked for a 33% reduction and we, uh, ended up at 65 K. Um, but the thing is, depending on what the seller wants and what you want, everything is up for negotiation. Um, and if they want, for example, speed, certain to close, um, a, a, a very good uh, counterparty to transact with, guess what? You need to pay for that. You need to pay for that. 
Absolutely, man. And this is this might be a good time to transition. Like, let's actually talk about numbers, right? So we talked about you can do yep. good with affordable housing, you can negotiate. Can you share one or two deals that you've done? Like what did you buy it for? What did you renovate it for? And you know, what kind of rents you're charging for and how much cash flow you're generating from those deals? Sure. Yeah, happy to. Let me actually uh, on, on on a separate screen, let me just pull up um that I know that this is going to audio. So let me just read out some of the numbers as as we go along. Yeah, love it. Um, so uh, let's talk about this duplex in particular. So this this duplex, it's you know, call it three thousand square feet square feet total, so fifteen hundred uh, per unit. Um, I was able to get this at um, sixty five thousand dollars, as um, as I stated beforehand. I knew going in that I would have to um, put in some work because this, uh, there there was some um, I would call deferred maintenance on on, on this property. Um, I was able to get a uh, a loan from Chase. Uh, that mind you, this is in the era of low interest rates. I got a thirty year fixed at 3.5%, um, 25% down payment. And what, so what it said that, so then people, people may ask, okay, that's great. What does that come out to from a monthly mortgage number perspective? That number is, you know, using round numbers, 220. Okay. 220 a month for a duplex. Um, I rent, I, I've rented it out. Um, at um, at total sixteen hundred in gross rent a month, okay. So the delta is quite large there. Now, of course, I had to put in some some more equity to to fix the houses. So I put in about let's just call it ten k of, of of work. So okay. So then that means my cost basis is sixty five k purchase price plus ten k of the uh, rehab that I done. I'm at seventy five k. Um, so then going back to the monthly expenses, you have 1600 of gross rent. My property manager actually takes 8% of that, but let's just assume 10%. So 10% of 1600 is 160. So 1600 minus 160 gets you to 1440, right? Um, there's going to be some maintenance that's going to come up. So let's just say, let's just, let's just bake in, I don't know. 200 bucks of maintenance. Okay, so, two, so 1440 minus 200, you're at 1240. And then you have 220 of your monthly mortgage, right? So 1240 minus 220, that gets to $1,040. We'll just say $1,000. But that's $1,000 of net, uh, of, of, of really free cash flow a month. Let's say you annualize that. So you're at 1000 times 12, which gets you to $12,000, right? Now, there are two main things that you need to account for that are one-time payments. Number one, insurance. Number two, property tax. And so for that, I know, you know, my property taxes, call it uh, for this for this property, 900 bucks a month. And my insurance is, let's call it $1,000, um, you know, over a 12 month period. So 900 plus 1,000 gets you to 1,900. Your annual free cash flow, you know, before that is 12K. So let's just say 12K minus, let's just round up to 2K. You're at 10K of net, you know, levered free cash flow 
a year for a property that you put down, um, you know, 25% of 65K, that gets it about, you know, 15K, right? Mm-hmm. 15K plus 10K of, of equity uh, of the additional rehab is 25K. So your, you know, your total, you know, cost basis is 25K. You follow me? Yeah, I am. I got my calculator on me. Or... <laughs> yeah. And and you are generating, give or take, 10K of free cash flow a year, which means that your payback period is less than three years. So what does that mean? It means that after, call it, you know, year 2.5, year three, every every dollar that I make on that property, that's just cash. I'm already covered on, on my cost basis. I've already made my, I've already covered my principal amount, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. That's like almost like a 40% cash and cash return every single year. And yes. for people that are trying to think about like, oh, how do I put my money in the stock market, get like five or 10% a year with a little with some effort here and some creativity and obviously great negotiation skills that Steven has demonstrated, he was able to get 40%. Yeah. That's like, like $10,000 a year. That's not, that's not a joke for some people that are out there like looking for financial freedom that might be making like 60, sure. 80 or even hundred thousand dollars a year. You only need like 10 of these. And then all of a sudden you yeah. get to step back and just enjoy it and know that you're also helping uh, a needy family that's on, low-income housing so totally i think this just speaks to how profitable affordable housing is assuming like all the things you bought right you screened the tenant you got great property management in place and you're taking care and and addressing any sort of maintenance issues that kind of comes up this is amazing like guys like this is a real life-saving money and it just takes consistency over time to get up to that level so that you can decide what you want to do maybe you want to retire early and this is exactly one way you can do it um, right. But th- thank you for sharing those numbers because I think this gives people a little bit more clarity on what is possible with affordable housing, Stephen. Because sometimes we just talk about the number of doors, but no one ever really goes into the deal as deep as right. you did just now. Right. So, really appreciate yeah. it. Um, maybe this is the part where we get to the some fun questions because it's part of this podcast, Perfect. right? We try to ask everyone kind of their perspective on why they think affordable housing is so hard to solve for, particularly like the supply of affordable housing, because sure. I was talking to you, like when I was in affordable housing, waitlist was like seven mm-hmm. years. Right now in like San Diego, where I live, it's like 12 to 15 years. It's crazy. Yep. But for some reason, it's not, it's not coming down. The waitlist isn't coming down and there's still a great lack of supply of affordable housing in, in the country. So I'm curious, what, why do you think affordable housing is so hard to solve for? And if there were like one or two things that you think we should be focusing on as generation, what might them be? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I'm certainly no, um, you know, housing expert by any means, but I'm happy to share it anecdotally based on, based on what I have read and, and learned. I think that uh, it, there's really a few core um, issues that, um, that, that need to be resolved um, that ha- that largely have been unresolved. I think number one is um, getting the supply of affordable housing up. Um, I think that there are actually not. I think I know that there are many jurisdictions, city municipalities, cities, municipalities that love the idea of affordable housing and are not supportive of builders building affordable housing in their neighborhood. And so I think you receive a supply constraint 
because of that reluctance. And that shows in not getting permits and not um, making these permits in such a way so that it makes sense to the developer. Um, because the developer needs to make money too, uh, and everyone who comes along with it. And if you're going to impose onerous permits and processes and bureaucracies uh, on, on this type of process, then people will not be incentivized to increase the supply. So that's number one. I think number two is, and again, this is something that I've experienced as well, is the reluctance of landlords to rent out to Section 8 tenants. It usually comes with increased maintenance. Uh, they don't treat the home well or as their own. And um, and they if they are responsible for a portion of the rent payment, sometimes they are delinquent. And so I think those are some of the reasons that um, make it challenging for some landlords to really um, be motivated to rent out to um, Section 8 tenants. Um, and um, I think it's, a, it's an issue that still persists and is not helped by a lot of times um, the housing authorities not willing to pay market rent. If you're choosing between two tenants and let's say you need to do the same amount of rehab every year, why are you going to go with someone who can pay you a thousand bucks a month versus 700 bucks a month? You're leaving 300 bucks a month of gross rent every month, annualize that. 3,600 bucks, you're leaving $3,600 on the table if you go with a Section 8 tenant um, versus a regular non-Section 8 tenant. It just doesn't make economic sense for you as the investor. Um, and that, I think the other thing is, um, I don't think, I think there's still some sort of um, negative stigma around around Section 8. Um, putting aside the the social aspects of that, uh, I'm, I'm talking about landlord tenant dynamics. Um, I think that um, better for better or for worse, failure or not, um, I think some um, so, some tenant groups have uh, have, have a reputation for, for for not destroying properties but for not treating them well. And I think that stereotype can persist and it um, is a gating issue for some landlords. Um, Anyways, th those are some of the key things that, um, from my perspective, are really um, critical to address. Now, in to answer your, the second part of your question, what can we do as our generation to sort of alleviate the affordable housing crisis or shortage, whatever word you want to use? I think number one is you, <laughs> you need to build more homes um, and you need to build it in such a way so that it makes sense to all stakeholders. I don't like to use the word shareholders, I like to use the word stakeholders. So, so what, do, what do I mean by that? It needs to make sense to the developer. It needs to make sense to the local government. Um, it needs to make sense to the tenant and it needs to make sense to the owner of the building. Um, I'm sure there are other parties involved, but those are some of the, 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 the those are the four main ones that come to mind for me. And so, to that end, I think it's important to align, I guess what I would call aligning incentives so that everyone is trying to work towards the same thing 
uh, for similar reasons. Um, I think I think that's going to be probably the number one issue. Um, and then I'll, I would also say I, I don't think I don't think HUD has a funding issue, and I don't think the Section Eight program has a funding issue. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a very it's a it's a long-standing program that's that has received consistent bipartisan support. So there's no there's, it's not an issue of funding. It's an issue of process and of educating local housing authorities about what the market rent looks like and of improving the process so that um, they can partner with property managers and owners uh, in, in, in a better way. A lot of times, if you do Section 8, you, you need to get um, extra documentation. You need to go through annual inspections. You need to jump through a lot more holes. And if you don't have um, a, uh, uh, a a partner on the other side, the housing authority, if they are extremely hard to work with, then you're just creating brain damage for lesser rent, which to me doesn't make a lot of sense. So, uh, okay, oh, man. pause there. Um, but those are some of the thoughts that immediately come to mind um, when I think about affordable housing and some of the issues that still pervade affordable housing. Yeah, man, I, I love your response to that question. It was so structured and you know well thought out, and you laid out a few things that we need to one like just really raise awareness for because there are so many things that it's such a big problem that you almost have to attack it from all angle. And I love your phrase right. of aligning the interests of all the stakeholders because you do need everybody to participate in solving this problem. It's not just sure. tax incentives from the government; it's also making the process easier. Because guess what? If you if you make the process so hard, people are naturally going to shy away from friction in the process. It's kind of sure. like the, the example I use, like, hey, why does Amazon try to get to two-day shipping? Because they're trying to take away the friction away from, right. from buying products. Right. There, there needs to be similar sort of best practices that would carry forward to affordable housing that yep. makes the process a lot easier so that it doesn't take forever to get zoning, get further, get permits. And you also don't get the market rents that you're looking for. You can't, you can't have it all. You can't make it more difficult and give less money away. And it just inspect people, expect people to do this out of just the kindness of their hearts. There needs to be a little bit more incentive there. So I love all the examples you've given, man, Stephen. And I love that it's based off of your experience in this industry of investing. But, you know, like I said, thank you for what you do. Because without people like you, I would have never had a stable home kind of grow up without affordable housing for my family to grow up in yep. and ultimately for me to grow up as a kid. So thank you. Thank you for what you do. Stephen, this has been an awesome conversation, man. You gave given such great tactical advice, so much value packed into this episode. Dude, I, I <laughs> can't you. thank you enough, but dude, what's next for you? What, what if people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about you and your investment journey? Sure. Yeah. Happy to, happy to, happy to chat. So I, I think the best way for, to, for, for people to, um, re, to, to get in touch would be really through LinkedIn. Um, I'm not super active on social media. I don't have Instagram, um, but uh, you can find me, Stephen Yen, S T E P H E N, and then Y I N uh, Yen uh, on on LinkedIn. I think that's the most direct way, and and I believe my my email is listed on there as well. So if you want to chat through or connect through email, then happy to happy to be in touch that way. Um, I I think that uh, property is the most time tested and the most accessible 
way to create generational wealth um, for for anyone who's willing to roll their sleeves and put in the work and to be judicious with their money. Um, I think when you look at past examples, whether it's the big developers like Stephen A. Ross or Sam Zell or any of those other um, uh, names, um, I, I think what you find is that a lot of them started off, you know, it's not like they started off with a billion dollars of cash in their bank account. That's not how that's, that was not their origin. They, they, they put in the work early on and obviously they're now reaping the rewards. That's something that I hope to, 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 to also do slowly. Um, I think that, um, uh, for the listeners who, who are listening, I think it's important to start off with one, get it up running and cash flowing, then two, then three. And I, I, I would also say that it's important to be very firm on value when you when, when, when you purchase a property. Um, I, I would say that, uh, again, everything's up for negotiation. So that is especially true for the asking price. Um, and similarly, it's important to um, to to be firm with your selling price whenever you decide to to exit. Um, don't don't compromise on you know if you have a number in mind to get to the returns that you want to get to. Don't compromise on that number. Um, now, if a number is is not reasonable, then that's a different conversation. But um, it. If it's if, if someone is lowballing you, you as a seller down the road, you need to be firm, um, and especially it's it's especially important, I guess, for myself and and for you, who have, um, you know, partners, friends who are who are co-investing with you. Um, a lot of times, I, I found myself as sort of the the main operator, the main driver of, of different um, initiatives on the properties. Uh, while, while others may take a more passive role. So it's the onus is on you to really, um, I guess, you know, to create value for yourself, for uh, your tenants, for for your co-investors. Um, at the end of the day, you know, if, 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 you're, if your partners, if your friends, if your family, if they are entrusting you with money, their money, their capital, then you as the lead general partner um, or the lead limited partner, rather, you need to, you know, uh, you have a, you have a, you have a fiduciary duty to, to maximize the returns uh, for, for all your investors. Um, so that's what I would say. That's how I think about it at least. I love it, man. You take ownership you take a responsibility. What a nice little mic drop to end the podcast, man. So, <laughs> Dude, I love it. Thank you so much, Stephen. And maybe uh, hopefully in the future, we can get you back onto the podcast to see where you are in your investment journey. Sure. I think that's going to be really fun to kind of hear people and hear about your growth of your portfolio, right? It's kind of amazing all the things that you've done already so early in your investment career. And I can't wait to kind of hear, hear about your journey. In a thank you so much for having so me, thank you. I really appreciate it. For coming. Oh, this yep. has been so fun, man. Thank you again, Stephen. Have a great one. Yep. Thank you.